Hello, I'm Greg Howard Jr., and this is Don't Make This Weird, the podcast. Each week, I invite a special guest to talk about their life, news, politics, and anything else that may come up. Head over to the Patreon, where you'll get the random questions game, a secret from my guest. You get some merch for being a loyal patron, and you get this uh, whole episode uncut and without this bit about joining the Patreon. So head over to patreon.com forward slash springbreak83 productions to join now. All right, so my guest this week um, is the first and only real-life mermaid that I have ever met, and they are so not Swedish. Please welcome to the show my friend Inga. How are you? Thank you for the welcome. I am awesome. I am an awesome mermaid who's not Swedish. (laughs) And that's where we're at. So on this podcast, we do love a good origin story. Um, So give the kids at home listening just, you know, how did you get to be where you are now? Well, you want to take it all the way back. Um, Well, let's see. I was born a poor black child. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I was born in the 60s in the Mid-Hudson Valley. Um, My parents were both from Philly, West Philly and North Philly. But my dad got a gig in 1963 to go work at some company in in New York and learn about these things called computers. And um, so that's how we ended up in IBM area. So, um, and my parents, I was born in Vassa Brothers Hospital. Um, mm -hmm. We, my parents ended up getting an inherit, like a small inheritance, like $5,000 and built a house, which was fantastic, right? These two black kids um, just kind of doing their own thing. And um, it turned, it it was a um, dairy farming hamlet um so that's where we were we showed up the five of us and people knew we were coming and not in a good way or a bad way but we were living across the Hudson River waiting for the house and um we were driving over my mom's little red Carmen Gia not a child strapped in to a seatbelt to be seen so all five of us, well, actually my dad was in there. All four of us hopped in mom's red Carmen Gia and we're going over to look at the house. And the mailman, we, we got lost. And we stopped and talked to the mailman and he knew, he was like, oh, you must be looking for that. And um, we're like, yeah, that's us. It's us. We're the ones coming. So we moved into Statsburg, New York. Uh, my parents built sort of this funky, newfangled house in a colonial area. And um, this guy, Frank Petitella, was building A-frames and this, that, and the other. No, my parents didn't have an A-frame. They had to, like, go way out. Like, the ce- like the walls didn't go up to the ceilings. And just stuff. You know, this, this uh, fire 
uh, fire tr- fire station was being built. So here's was my mom and her three kids in the Carmen Ghia, and we drove back and forth for hours getting those bricks, harvesting those bricks. So that's why I started kindergarten. Um, we basically integrated, as I said, a dairy farm in Hamlet. I'm not sure. I think my parents were like, yes, we get to build a house. We get to be funky. We get to be free. But they forgot that we might be living amongst half hippies and half racist. So and to this day, the town really only has 397 people. Um, look that up. But um, <laughs> um, I'm sure, you know, they've changed little, you know, town, tar- parts of the town into different things. But the, the town, the hamlet of Statsburg today has 397 people. So there, I mean, when you think of, you know, a bunch of races, it's only like, you know, maybe 100, you know. And we lived right across the river from Woodstock. My sister, my little sister was born August 19th, 69. So that was the day after Woodstock ended. So part of her birth story is getting down Route 9 or Route 9G to get to the hospital to have her. But for all the hippies laying down in the middle of the highway, um, asleep, awake, drinking, having sex, do whatever. My parents, pretty straight-laced people, although very creative, were just like, ah! So that's the kind of area we grew up in. Very um, rural, yet um, there was you know, basically a lot of highly educated people with Marist College being right in town and um, New Pulse was, you know, Sunny New Pulse was bringing out a lot of new thinkers. But then the other part was I couldn't go into the main part of Tracy Barton's house. Like, yeah, I could only go in through the downstairs door by the garage and stay down there. Like, I couldn't go into their living space. These are things I noticed later in life. Right. And so it's kind of a mix of that. Still have friends from there. Um, I hadn't gone back in years. We moved in 75 to California. I, hadn't, I didn't go back until about 2014. So I wanted to do some videoing and stuff. So it was, it was emotional, yet it was, um, you know, this is, this is part of who I am. So when I was a little kid, I was riding horses, fishing, all that kind of stuff, um, playing uh, tag on horses, um, ice skating when the winter would um, come and the ice would freeze over. One one dad would stay on our side of the road. We lived on Creek Road, so a big creek ran down the back. So um, one dad would, you know, stay on one side with a rope, another truck on the other side, and then you know, one would go across to make sure. And then we would skate all day and all night. We, they would make us big bonfires um, and gas cans. And we would, you know, sometimes the parents would send out grilled cheese to make over it because nobody was going in. Nobody was going to waste um, that time out. It wasn't until later in my life that I realized that I kind of had a childhood and life experience that not most people who look like me had, you know? 
And um, it was interesting, you know, then we moved to California and then suddenly we were in the beach lifestyle. Again, the only black people. Then um, we did Southern California through high school and such. And my dad ended up going to a startup around that time called Apple. And um, he ran a division in our town because my mom literally was like, if you move again, I'm out. And so he ran that division that was building Lisa down there. And then by that time, Matt came along and I was away at school and the, you know, my, my mom, my dad, my sister and stuff moved to the Bay Area. And that's how I ended up in the Bay Area. So that's it. That's me from zygote to menopausal. (laughs) (laughs) So now I know you from, um, from Twitter, uh, as, a supporter of the now vice president of the United States. Uh, how did you, how did you come to be a part of political Twitter? I became a part of political Twitter just before I became part of it when, um, 2016 election. Um, I was in a, I was in a group that was pro Hillary and um which ended up being kind of pro-white supremacy but anyway that's a whole nother story (laughs) um but people were saying get on twitter because the you know the answer you get information very quickly um you you know you can kind of see what's going on if that's how your brain works that you like to know a lot of things then go on twitter but the, the the main um kind of advice was block immediately if anybody like comes halfway crooked block them don't try to have a conversation blah 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 blah. now here we are just many years later trying still trying to have those conversations (laughs) (laughs) you know i never follow rules ask my parents so um and then i became very heavily and so that was a devastating time to a lot of us as that election went through um and then of course they became like all hands on deck red alert you know I, um, bit, you know, worked a little bit on Kamala's Senate run, and as I should say, Madam Vice President's Senate run, and love her, had an incident with her years ago when she worked the State Department in Alameda County, and I had a stalker, and she literally started my case. We turfed to Michaela Hochter in San Francisco because the person was leaving the phone calls on my work phone and I worked in San Francisco. But just seeing her a couple of times and how much she cared. I mean, a same sex talking, stalking case, even in the Bay Area uh, 20 years ago was a thing. It was not taken that seriously. It was... Um, the relationships were barely taken seriously, let alone I'm being like viciously stalked and my kids, I'm, I'm being told what my kids are wearing each day. So I, you know, I know I'm being watched and she was the very beginning of part in putting Judy in jail, her investigator, Inspector Lynch 
this all sounds ridiculous, but it really happened. Inspector Lynch called and said, driving across the Bay Bridge, I'm going to get her. I got handcuffs. I got a warrant. And I just breathed a sigh of relief and sent a letter to MVP just saying, thank you so much for taking this case seriously, because I do feel like somebody could have gotten very hurt. And she wrote me back a nice little letter, you know, cute note on her note card and just saying, I absolutely take it seriously. I take you seriously. And that's when I, I said, this, this woman's going to be president. And then sure enough, you know, a couple decades, two decades later, here we are. And I just jumped right on board. I went to that first camp Kamala and um, got busy. So what do you make of the, you know, recently, you know, as recently as today, uh, there have been a string of, quote, journalistic uh, hit pieces against the vice president. Um, the most recent one being that she doesn't like Bluetooth earbuds. Uh, why do you think the, the media is going out of their way to write these non-stories about her? Right. Well, there's a couple of things I think. One is that there's a certain intelligence level um, amongst some of our electorate that um, it's not oriented to time and place. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, so those are the people that, that those kind of wacky, oh, wacky joke, like we don't really care, you know, but that's that, art, that article hits that person. See, you know, which is totally bizarre. I think the mean thing about the hit pieces are that the reason for them is that she's very competent very highly competent she is charismatic she's been out on the international stage just tearing it up they don't the media doesn't want to say that because they're afraid of um you know basically they're trying to kneecap her before it's time for the next presidential election. I believe this. I know who owns the media. And a powerful, competent, you know, you can try to disarm me, but I have another trick. And she's been up by sleep and she's, she's been at this for a very long time. She, she knows the climate. Right. So she knows those attacks are coming. And it's not fair, but she knows they're coming and she's still going to have her career and doing exactly what she wants to do in life. And that's what makes people scared. But if we start talking too high level of things, you know, we got to go back to something totally dumb. So that'll just, it'll just, you know, basically the, the person they're looking for, which is turning into two people, but one is, um, you know, a person who has maybe less education, doesn't want to talk to big, and just because you, you can, if, it doesn't matter what education level you have, you know, to be able to talk to issues, the actual issues, and keep up, and have opinions based in fact, where you have, you can cite the source, right? And even then, 
who knows you know anyway they're not they're not prone to look at the facts and and all this stuff about the um the vaccine do your research i did my research really (laughs) (laughs) no you didn't you went on q and on you know so there's you know i think mainly it's it's an attack on her because it's an attack on joe um this is the this we're still facing the repercussions of obama having elected obama um it's a lot of things but i I think the really silly ones are kind of like wow somebody got paid for writing that like what do we have journalism anymore do we have the fourth estate it's getting it's getting i'm I'm a little troubled yeah because it's it seems like opinion opinion which i have an opinion boy do i have an opinion but what happened to journalism where it stated the facts you know, it started, I remember the first one was that she had a very specific favorite type of pen. And then, then she bought the, the pot when she was in, when she was in Paris. And that was, that was what, like, that was four days of like wall to wall coverage of she bought this $300 pot when she was in France. Elitist. Right. Like, you know, and I, I, it, it may have been you that, that made the point that like, you know, good cookware is expensive. Like, why would you? And it lasts forever. The whole point is that for it to pass on. I mean, yeah. You know, and now and it's... Those, especially the bros. I mean, believe me, they have the, they have their nice cookware too. It's just so offensive that she had the gall to do that is coming from a place that we are not yet ready to, to really talk about. Well, it's not, it's not all that surprising when like, especially during, during her presidential campaign, um, a lot of like her, her on the ground, you know, meeting people in their homes was like, when I vividly remember when she was in Iowa, Mm -hmm. that she was, she was going to people's houses and like cooking dinner with them and you know talking about the 3 a.m agenda that was powerful (coughs) you know so like we we know she's she cooks like you know (laughs) and if she ordered takeout every night that would be a problem too so it's it's one of those what you know that we're dealing with so many things and the people the class is only class and not race people love to bring up stuff like that and then swear up and down it has nothing to do with her race has nothing to do with her being south asian has nothing to do with her being jamaican black it all has to do with the fact that she can afford a 300 dollars pan i said sweetie i bought a 300 pan and paid for it over four payments you know why because i cook yeah and I want to pass it on to my kids. You know, it's 
we're just we're we're just not anywhere near there but see i also remember like the same um it's not race it's class people when hillary famously pulled the hot sauce out of her purse Mm -hmm. they were the first ones to go oh she's pandering but like you you just said it's it's class not race so which is it yeah yeah no it's always gonna there's you know there's obviously a card when someone says this you say that when someone says that you say this and the reality is and then also there's and then you add that to the whole pandering thing this whole concept that certain groups i'll say black people you know lgbtq whatever that we're not capable of being able to vote in the in the best way for us and and for our communities like what is this weird thing is if you talk to if i talk to an asian person oh i'm pandering maybe i just wanted to talk to them about my campaign you know and that pandering thing has a racial undertone to it as well i mean she's not pandering to I don't, I feel like they weren't saying she was pandering to the highest, to Obama. She was pandering to Uncle Joe. Yeah. I think that's gross. Hot sauce is black. I thought we got over the watermelon thing. And here we are. So campaigning is now pandering immediately. And then we're low information voters to top it all off. So that ties into that as well. Which then ties into that we're less intelligent. Yeah, I think the and it what's what's interesting to me is that, you know, if if a candidate goes out and speaks to a certain demographic about the issues that are facing their community it's always the people outside of that community who are the ones yelling pandering Mm -hmm. you're not listening to me look at me look at me and i mean let's I'll, i'll be completely honest it's it's white people. It's always white people who are saying, oh, that's, that's pandering. Oh, that's pandering. And it's like, you, you're, you're not a member of that community. So no, you, you don't, you don't get, get a vote. And then besides yeah. the fact, so you just want those communities to remain without resources. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. You know, yeah. we don't want them to have, you know, what we have. I mean, sweetie, I've heard I, I, the first time I realized that white people were afraid of what was going to happen to them was at Elaine Galinsky's five, five year birthday. We were all turning five that summer, spring, summer. And her dad said, just in passing, yeah, we're gonna have to watch out. These niggers and wetbacks are taking us over. 
my friend Jamie, Solana Beach, California. I bought around about, you know, 75 right when we moved here. I live, you know, we live in San Diego area. And her mom said, I said, oh, what's that van? And she goes, oh, that's where they pick up all those filthy wet bats. Now these are, father is a doctor of mechanical engineering. Mother was something, I don't think she had a career, but she's very involved in the community and charity and stuff like that. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm five and then six. And I'm thinking, are we one of them? But way back then they started that push toward we cannot become outnumbered. That's the first time I noticed it. I was five. I was five years old and I already knew. And what was my parents' response? Trying to give us good schools and safe schools. And they just kept dropping us in these extremely like white communities. And to the, you know, people, and to them it meant, you know, you can get a better house in a better school district, you know, blase, blase. And they just dropped us in again. <laughs> but 1970 was the first time I knew that white people were afraid that somebody was coming to replace them. I mean, that's crazy. And here we are with people walking around Charlottesville with tiki torches going, the Jews will not replace us. And it's a trip. They were um, at the Lincoln Memorial uh, two days ago, I think it was. Yep. And they're coming, trust. It's gonna get a little ugly. Yes, our lives are gonna go on. We're gonna go to work. We're gonna have friends and do all those things. But the incidents, um, fear, is the one of the biggest motivators of violence. So, you know, a group that I work with down here, they've got three men and one lady, one woman embedded in a couple of groups that are common in Southern California. And she's like, they've got military um, vehicles They've, you know, been stocking ammo since we were kids. Um, I used to make fun of the whole doomsday prepper community, but I'm glad I watched a few of them. So I have have some, you know, some tools, but we're going to see some unrest. Like I said, I'm not saying the planet's going away. I'm not saying the country's going away. I'm not saying anything like that, but our way of life is going to get a little bumpy. (laughs) Er, bumpy er. Um, and, and I'm worried. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't think any of us still re- will ever forget that night that what's the same one. Um, no, not at all. Individual one. And, you know, we keep going down these 
these rabbit holes, the Mueller investigation, this, that, you know, and just kind of them all protecting each other, protecting their way of life. And I just, I really do hope that, um, that this January 6th hooligan brigade is dealt with because if it's not, then it means it's okay. Yeah. Um, while we're, while we're on the topic of hooligans and, uh, obvious people who will become like the January 6th, uh, rioters, Mm -hmm. uh, we have to talk about the tragic, uh, school shooting in, uh, Michigan over the past week. Um, yeah, yeah, that, um, I mean, that's a, that's a classic example, but it's, and I, that's what I, I tweeted. I'm like, look, we've got to accept that these people are being radicalized at home, period. These are families. They're, you, you know, we, yeah, so we know all about the lone wolf and parents had no idea about it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, we understand there's that small portion, but I think we're starting to really see especially after the insurrection, you know, parents and kids there. And um, this is happening from a deep sociological place of white grievance. And yeah. they went on the run. So what they do, they probably just told them to go in there and shoot up the school. We don't, we'll never know. But whatever ideology is propagated in their household he and their family obviously find themselves to be the victims and they have to find kill people. What? And our kids, I, I can't even imagine, you know, going to school with active shooter drills as part of your life. I mean, we used to have to get under for the big, for the A-bomb to draw, you know, I, I grew up in elevator, you know, I mean, um, what's that thing called? Earthquake territory. <laughs> You know, we're always under something, but this is like a clear and present threat. Yeah, somebody said there's nothing, there's nothing more American than a school shooting. Indeed. It's like that's I mean, we Columbine was the one that really woke us up. And it's just been going on ever since. And it, a lot of it stems from white resentment. Yeah. Because I was, I was in high school when Columbine happened. And I remember that was, that was kind of what brought back the, the whole, oh, is our music and video games yes. and films too violent? you know and then and video games yeah and then it you know that slowly died out and like you said like people started realizing that you know these these people are radicalized at home mm-hmm. most of the the ones very few we had one out here 
he um, shot up a Chabad in Poway, California. He just got sentenced, but he was one of the ones that his dad was a high school teacher and he he did become radicalized with other kids in his school and online. I'll never, at first I would say I'd never believe a parent didn't know. But with the amount of things that my kids who are in their 30s now tell me about, oh, remember that time in high school? Sometimes we don't know what's going on. <laughs> you know, where you know I really was? Where were you really? I'm like, oh my Lord. Well, you lived, okay? But we don't always know. And and because it's not, it's there's a there's a river of going, you know, that's just going flowing. It's a dam breaking of just all the shit that we never dealt with or dealt with very surface. When I was growing up, multiculturalism was was the way. It was post-civil rights, uh, the melting pot, um, those were the terminologies. Um, Free to be you and me came out and great efforts but we didn't heal what had happened up through 65. You know, I came onto the planet without full voting rights. And so then we said, okay, there's nothing different about us. We're all the same. I remember my textbook in sixth grade was um, like a you know, picture of a big stew pot with a bunch of people in it. <laughs> and that's, stirring them around they were terrifying <laughs> <coughs> i asked my mom this is like mike's sense of humor in sixth grade was well we just we just, we just witnessed a mass murder on my um <laughs> so we're all just gonna know we're all americans we're nothing else when you cut it you know, you know that didn't work yeah in fact, but you know, those, the folks that are mad and passing on generation to generation, because I'll tell you to these, these bros and stuff, it is not ending when boomers die. The whole, the youngest generations have already been indoctrinated and it's going to be more violent. I mean, you hope somewhere along the line, some kind of educational purview or something like kicks in but it's it's like it's like we got to go through some stuff yeah that's kind of what i feel like in hopes that those things trigger um just to be able to live So we have come to the part in the show uh, where I dive into my inbox and pull out a letter from a listener. Um, This week's letter comes to us from Lila in Montana. Hello, Lila. Thank you for listening. Um, Lila would like to know, in your opinion... What would be the best way to motivate people to vote in every election and not just the presidential elections? 
I think probably we, we've lost a certain amount of, gen- you know, like generations or whatever. But I think from just day one, um, parents need to vote in every election and take their children with them. It should not be, and, you know, some people have a role eye about that. It doesn't matter. We're raising Americans. We're raising future voters. They need to see it as a normal part of life, whether it's school school board, whatever. Go over it with your kids. We'll start there. Schools need to back it up. It doesn't, we need to talk about it throughout the year and use the tools of voting throughout the year. So, okay, kids, I've got two books. I think we might read together. This is this one. This is what it's about. This is this one. This is what it's about. Let's have a vote. And then you can also talk about how it feels when your vote doesn't go your way. You know, how do we handle those emotions? How do we handle um, becoming lethargic? What do we do then if, say, our person didn't win? Then, well, then what can we do? Then we immediately, you know, go on to the next thing. It's got to be reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. Um, do you know? Just I, I can just think of all these small ideas, just like very um, micro. But for me, it builds into a macro thing where voting in every election is a part of being an American. Just like you can get your driver's license when you were 16. Well, when you're four, you know, you know that we vote here. This is a democracy, the democratic republic. We vote here. Our vote doesn't always go the way we want, but there's possibly some other thing that we can work on that will soothe us and give us more energy to get back in there and go on to the next election where we might win. Older people, I just think it's constant, maybe a little shaming. Um, uh, <laughs> just in every conversation, you'll be talking about, I don't know. Didn't you love that elderberry sorbet? Yes, but did you vote? Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> I'm serving my famous elderberry sorbet to people who voted in the school board election come through. I've got some sorbet for you, you know, but I just, we've got to get that civics and it's, it's, and we're a country of laws. I mean, that's what we say. We came here to govern ourselves, not by, not we, let's get that straight, <laughs> but came here to govern without a monarchy. We didn't leave it all behind because we have sort of a pseudo oligarchy where you know, 5% of people own all the wealth. So um, I would say it's just constant reinforcement, constant, I'm not above a bribe. I told those ladies that I go down to the um, help with lunch at the senior center uh, about once a month. And um, why do I have to do that? I'm like, and I said, listen, hon, do you have, she always talks about her grandkids, just 12. I said, let me see a picture of your grandkids. She showed me, I said, this is why you're going to vote. Point it to number one. This is why you're going to vote. Point it to number two. This is why I really want you to vote. Number three. I mean, to say that that was real whack, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But um, 
she thought about it and I said, because if they see you, a woman who's gone all through life as a voter, right? She said, pretty much. And I said, kids have immense relationships with their grandparents. They kind of have all their stuff that they kind of grew up with, you know, with their parents or whatever, whatever. Grandparents are often their sounding board. The person who doesn't have to worry about their grades. The person who just gets to love you up. You have great, great, great um, pull. You have great um, power to bring along your friends here at the senior center. In fact, I went and took them all to vote. We, we did seven carloads and all the ladies go to the lunch and then talk about it with your kids, your grandkids. See, we went through this way of voting. We're voting with secret. Someone just said that to me recently over the past couple of years. I liked it better when voting was secret. And I was like, well, now we have to take responsibility for our votes. We have to be held accountable for our votes. And that's how a society is healthy in a democracy like ours. You know, and we're a, we're a sliding democracy at this point. So one of the biggest tenets of democracy is voting in every election. Talk it up, Lila, talk it up, talk it up, talk it up. Go to your, you know, if get permission from your, I'm not, I'm not how old she is, but permission from school, the school below, you know, the grades below her and go and talk it up. And this country depends on voting. That is the only way a democracy works. When we don't vote, we get oligarchs. And we don't vote, we get you know who, I won. True that. I like, you know, I like, for me, like, I like to be able to like say, oh, I voted in that election or, you know, like I yeah. can tell nieces and nephews, you know, oh yeah, I've, you know, I remember that election. I remember voting yes. in that election. This is where I was. This is how long right. I waited in line. This is, yes. you know, I remember it was pouring like down rain that day. History. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. And it's an, it's an amazing connector. And then also to our elders for them to sit and tell us oh yeah I voted for Eisenhower and, da, 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 and I had to do this and and it should be a continuum like that with um well and then with the backup of the school system when we're civics I don't believe that a lot of people know how our government works including some of the ones who are doing the job yeah this is not a rally act it's you know, it's nice if you have an activist heart and blah, 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 but you came here to do this job. You ran a campaign. People put you in. No one put you in to go camping. They shall be nameless. Yeah. But it's, it's okay. I'm editing that whole part. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I don't, you know, I just have to start. It's, you know, and then we always get, don't we ever make any progress? Why do we always have to start from the beginning? But 
you know, we need, you know, seventh and eighth grade, we need to reinforce it. When we, I feel like that's when kids sort of become like ne- the nebulous thinkers, although there was a lot of kids involved in student government and stuff. Um, but we've become so afraid to talk about the issues. It's become so polarized that um, I don't know if teachers can really take that on. They're really trying to be, you know, teachers, social workers, um, police, you know, they're doing so many jobs. Yeah. I can't lay it all on them, you know. Well, now I'm you have to run an election for every single thing. It's like, damn, I'm just trying to see if we're going to have metal detectors or not. You know what I'm saying? It's like we put way too much on that segment of, of learning. And it's a very important segment of learning. I would have made a great teacher. It's just I could have never worked within the system. Well, how was your first day? Fired. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that good? I finally learned uh, at this this old age that you cannot work in large institutions where there's a lot of not a lot of room to be creative and stuff. You just stop doing that to yourself and stop doing that to your employer and your coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> just stop trying to do that. <laughs> so we have come to the end of the show um is there anything that you would like to plug anything that the listener should be looking out for um if you want to you know drop your social media handles you can do that as well anything at all what i would like to say is look out for in early 2022 my new platform called matriarch and um it's just all things women trans women any anyone who identifies as in some way a woman over the age of 50 will come and find all kinds of things pertinent to her funny things cooking demonstrations uh, traveling alone all kinds of things that um we get to do when we get older besides just think about getting older <laughs> a good time so right on that work, um and um, we're gonna be having so that so in the meet we think we're in the, in, we're in the process of my brother's um writing an app so that we can match people to, we'll do, be doing a lot of research. What do you want to know where this is? And we'll have that whole kind of thing going on. Um, you know, places around the world that cater to older people, to older women. It'll be, it'll be a lot of fun because ageism is a big thing. And that- people changing careers, you know, in their 50s and stuff. So that's what we're doing. We're, we're going pro-aging. Right on. Um, when that launches, you will have to come back and we well, will talk about it. Yeah, we will talk all about I that. Really it. I didn't even tell you my one story of how um, this is just how someone recently, one of our tweets was like, You sound like a 17 year old girl from San Fernando Valley. And I was like, Well, 
I did grow up in the Conejo Valley, which is one valley north of the valley. And yes, I do have that certain vernacular. Hilariously, I called up a barbershop and I said, I'd like to make an appointment to get my hair cut. And the guy just kind of paused. And then he said, oh, for your boyfriend? And I was like, no, it's for me. He's like, do you, or do you know of our, sh-? I mean, I was like, yeah, girls, I drive by every single day. And I finally said, let me check this brother out. He's like, so the appointment's for you. And I was like, yes. So he thought I sounded so white that he was like, girl, you're not coming up in here. Then you're going to go by. And so I show up the next day and he's like, oh, it, everyone <laughs> was waiting for me. Every single person, I got to see this. And um, that in and of itself is the story of my life. I will say that you actually sounded pretty pretty close to how I thought you would. Really? Okay, yeah. that's good. I like it. He's like, yeah, so you're like a seven, you know, mentally you're a 17 year old. Honey, go get you some, some meds. And I really appreciate this. This is so great. Appreciate you being interested in talking to me. Thank you for, thank you for coming on. Um, you know, anytime you want to come back, just, you know, shoot me a message. I will, I will clear the calendar for you. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you so much. I'll talk, I'll see you on Twitter. Okay. Okay. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing. And if you're on Apple podcasts, leave us a review. If you didn't enjoy this episode, why the fuck are you even still here? If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at don'tmakethisweirdpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at sb83productions, on Instagram at springbreak83productions. Don't Make This Weird is a Spring Break 83 production.